Welcome to This Is Influence. It's a show about how B2B brands and execs can become more influential. This week, I sit down with Jennifer Qatar, Head of Marketing for Real-Time Agency, an independent digital ads performance agency. Jen is an expert on all things influence. She's a highly sought after fashion influencer herself and was recently named as one of the top 20 most influential women in marketing. She's not only got a very deep understanding of marketing and performance, but being an influencer herself, she's best placed to help us understand how to work with the best influencers, how much to pay them, and how to get the best out of the relationship. If you're even remotely interested in any of that stuff, then you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So this is old, this is new, this is Influence. Jen Qatar, welcome to This Is Influence. Thank you so much, Nathan. I'm so excited for this session today. Super excited to, to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time for two reasons. One, you're an influencer yourself. So you've got a perspective of on how to work with influencers, what influencers like and, and how they should work with brands. And also you sell influencer performance marketing services to your clients. So what perspective does that give you based on having both sides? Yeah. Um, so I think it's actually, it's an interesting perspective, right? And I think it is um, quite unique. I've been very blessed to be able to kind of see both sides of that coin. Um, I tend to see that on on both ends, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of the other side. So for instance, um, you know, I see a lot of brands sort of look at influencers as um, solely a tool for their marketing. And I, I do think that influencers, um, you know, are in a way a tool, but um, we would always want to be kind of treating influencers as uh, their own sort of, you know, professionals. They are their own marketers. They are an extension of your marketing team in a way, right? So um, we definitely don't want to just be simply working with influencers as a tool. We want to be working with them as partners and kind of treating them with the same respect that we treat any of our other partners. Um, on the other side, though, you know, I tend to see a lot of um, a lot of creators. I see this a lot on TikTok, by the way. Um, a lot of creators kind of talk about, you know, how as an influencer you need to protect yourself, and part of that means making these very strict demands of brands, um, you know, especially when it comes to budget or fee. And I think, a, you know, a massive misunderstanding there is that um, the way that these, you know, these fees get calculated, how much a brand can afford to pay you, is based on a million and one variables. It's, you know, they're not. Uh, offering you a low rate because they're, they don't respect you. They may be offering you less than what you've seen in the past because there is a massive hierarchy behind the scenes that's dictating how much budget they have for influencer marketing or, you know, um, many influencers who haven't necessarily worked in advertising don't totally understand um, the extent of a marketing funnel and, and what may be included in each piece. Um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, on both sides for the other side. And it's nice to be able to kind of bridge that gap between the two. How would you describe the state of influencer marketing today? I, I, you know, I would categorize it as being quite a mature category. I think a lot of, especially retail and fashion brands are very familiar with the marketing strategy. How would you classify where we are in influencer marketing today? And are there still big returns to be seen from it? Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I think I've got a couple things to say on that topic. The first is uh, influencer marketing today has actually, I would say, taken a pretty drastic change over the past maybe year, year and a half. Um, I myself, as you've mentioned, I'm an influencer, but I'm categorized as a millennial influencer, which is very different than a Gen Z influencer now. Uh, millennial influencers and the way that influencer marketing used to work a few years ago was um, we're all sort of categorized into verticals. So you'd have your fashion influencers, you'd have your food influencers, you'd have your, um, you know, home decor influencers. Now with Gen Z, what we're seeing more so is they're not categorized into these verticals. They are influencers based on a dynamic you know, uh, kind of sense of self. They, there is a lot of different moving pieces with them and they are influencers as a whole being rather than just one facet of their personality or hobbies or interests. Um, so that's number one. But number two, just in terms of legitimacy, um, and I'll mention this because I know it's a very hot topic right now, this um, this concept of de-influencing, which um, many people are, are panicking over. They're like, you know, well, what does this mean for brands who now can't trust influencers to talk positively about them? Um, what does this mean for influencers if they're getting, you know, forced to, uh, you know, talk positively about brands in order to get paid? You know, are they being silenced if they're not able to speak negatively or give their honest feedback? Um, and the truth is that that de-influencing has been around for a very long time. I mean, before I, I mean, I now work as a TikTok influencer um, and a little bit on Instagram, but before this, I worked as a YouTube influencer. And even back in the early days of YouTube, um, de-influencing was a thing. So this has been around for for a very long time. Just define for our audience what de-influencing is. Absolutely. So um, for those who may not know, de-influencing is a movement that really has kind of been started by creators um, where they're moving out of this mindset of, you know, this product is so great. This product is perfect. Buy now, buy now, buy now. And they're moving more towards, um, you know, this product really may not be that great. It's not worth your money. Or, you know, this product is good if you have the money, but here are, you know, 18 great dupes if you can't afford this. And so there's a lot of panic kind of happening in the community because brands are saying now, well, what, how do we control this narrative when so many influential people now have the power to talk negatively about our products? But the truth is they've always had that power and they've kind of always been doing it in different ways. Mm. Um, and so I think that is, um, that's kind of a unique thing that's happening in today's age of influencer marketing. But I actually think, and this may be an, un- an unpopular opinion, but I've been around long enough in the space that I, I do think that this is worth talking about. Um, I actually think this is really good for the influencer space. And I think it legitimizes it a lot because now people are going to begin to expect that when an influencer is talking about a product, they're not scared to talk negatively about it. They're not incentivized to overhype it. So when they do overhype it, they're giving a genuine review and that's fantastic for brands. Mm. It makes your marketing even more genuine and authentic, which is what we all want. Absolutely. What defines in your mind a great influencer campaign in your mind? Are, Are there certain parameters or dimensions that work effectively time and time again that you've just seen consistently work well? Yeah. So before I answer this, I will say, um, so we had just actually hosted a webinar on this um, around a month ago, and we typically don't make them public. But uh, for the sake of this podcast, I did make it public in case anybody wants to go watch it on our YouTube channel. It's just uh, Real Time Agency on YouTube. Love it. Um, and so we we do a much deeper dive into kind of um, what marks a, you know, a 
successful influencer campaign and, um, you know, how you can kind of get that positive ROI out of it. But I would say, generally speaking, it needs to be a win for everybody, including the consumer. So, um, you know, the, the creator needs to be getting, uh, content that is, producing engagement for them, um, potentially increasing their following. They also need to be getting paid. Um, you know, and there are certain circumstances where that may not be the case, maybe a gifting campaign, but for the most part, they need to be getting some sort of value out of it as a working professional. Um, the brand obviously needs to meet their KPI goals and the brand definitely should be predetermining before they go into a campaign what those goals actually are. Are they looking for, um, you know, just sheerly eyeballs? Are they looking for consideration? Maybe they just want people to click and kind of check out the brand or are they looking for hard sales or acquisition? Um, and then thirdly, the audience needs to be getting value out of it. Um, I talk to a lot of brands who are kind of wishy-washy on, for, for instance, this is just one example, but providing coupon codes. And my response is always, the audience has to feel like they're getting some sort of benefit from engaging with this creator. They need to be getting some sort of discount or or something in return. So if everybody feels like they've gotten a win, that to me is the mark of a successful campaign. And across those three stakeholder groups, the, the audience, the brand, and the influencer, are there certain things that they tend to do wrong when it comes to influencer campaigns that don't tend to work well, both from the influencer's point of view, from the brand's point of view, and from the consumer's point of view, who's <laughs> actually consuming the content. What, you know, when it doesn't go well, what are the reasons for that? Yeah, absolutely. There are things that go wrong. Um, I would say the primary thing that goes wrong on each of those ends is one from the brand's point of view. Um, you know, we see this a lot as an agency. Uh, my job is always to kind of step in and put this to rest immediately. But we see a lot of brands that really want to kind of chokehold creators into a specific message, a specific type of creative, um, a specific imagery whatever it might be. And my response is always, you know, um, you know, we give this example on the webinar, actually, like if you wanted your house painted, you could just simply hire painters. Like if you knew exactly how you wanted it painted and you just wanted, you know, a yellow wall here and a red wall here, you just hire painters. But if you want someone to come in who's creative and who can do this in a way that you haven't imagined yet and do it in a way that they know the market is going to respond well to, you hire someone like Picasso, right? Um, and it's kind of similar with this. You don't, you don't hire an influencer because you want to tell them exactly what to say and exactly what to do. If you want that, you can just, you know, hire a UGC creator, uh, uh, some user generated content. Um, which is someone who will kind of act like an influencer, but they don't have the following. Um, Influencers are specialists in what they do. And so you want to give them that creative freedom. On the influencer side, um, I would say, you know, probably one primary issue that I see with a lot of creators who, you know, will get great views on all their videos and then they do a brand deal and all of a sudden those views drop is they're not being authentic to who they are. They're doing what they think the brand wants to see. And nobody, none of their followers want to be sold to, right? People want to be kind of sold a lifestyle or a narrative. They don't want to be sold a product. Um, so when you're not, you're not true to your style of creative, um, you're going to see those, those views tank. And then last but not least from the consumer's point of view. Um, and I think this is getting better now it's taken a while, but I think we're finally getting to a point where consumers are finally understanding that influencers need to do brand deals, um, to continue to kind of support, um, their art, right? They need to be getting paid. And so back in the day, we used to see a lot of uh, consumers being like, oh, like you're just doing this for money or, you know, um, you really want that paycheck, right? And it's it's like, well, you know, 
the the influencer need is going to be reviewing products anyways. They they might as well get paid for it so that you can continue to see your favorite creator continue to do what they do. If you were to teach a group of undergrads at university a one hundred and one influencer marketing course, let's say that you're you're the professor, what would be the main modules of of that course in your mind? I'd say um, a few things. One is I'm going to take a couple of notes from our values. Um, so Real Time has values that we use when we approach any influencer campaign, and we use this to kind of align with our clients to make sure that our clients also are going to respect those same values. Um, and it also helps dictate the types of creators that we work with, creators that also align with these values. Um, and so the first is, and I've mentioned this, we always want to be viewing the creator as a working professional as an extension of the brand's marketing team. Uh, That means that we're not, you know, we're not kind of pushing them around. We're not being condescending. We're not, uh, you know, just saying, oh, they don't really need to get paid. We're treating them as professionals, right? Second, I would say, uh, as I just mentioned, also, we always want creators to be sitting behind the wheel creatively. We never want to be giving them a brief where it lists out exactly what they need to say and do, because that may work really well for you as a brand. But guess what? You have just shot yourself in the foot in terms of the organic exposure and the organic performance because their audience isn't going to respond well to that. I'd say also maybe number three is be open to the landscape changing, you know, I guess this could kind of go for any field, but especially in influencer marketing, um, because it does change so drastically all the time is we, we really want to be adapting to what's happening on the other side. Um, again, I think that's why it's, it's kind of an interesting, um, vantage point for myself because I get to bop back and forth between, you know, the influencer side versus the ad side. Right. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe those are the top three that I, I would want to teach. I think if you can, if you can get those three down, you've got the chance to run a really successful influencer campaign. The, the thing that's super fascinating to me is that is the fact that influencer marketing works across the funnel, right? So at the top of the funnel, you can measure, uh, you know, traffic to the website, conversions, uh, brand awareness, social mentions, etc. The bottom of the funnel, um, you can measure conversions and demos and trials and, and sales. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of people assume that influencer marketing is mainly at the top, maybe middle of the funnel. Maybe talk a little bit about how you've seen brands drive ROI at the mid and and bottom of the funnel with influencer marketing. Sure. And I've actually got a lot to say on that because um, Realtime is a performance agency. So actually, although most brands kind of see influencer marketing as a top of the funnel tactic, we primarily use it for lower the fun- lower funnel and we use it across a wide variety of clients, everything from, um, you know, expected things like retail all the way to finance. And again, if anyone wants to learn more about this, we have a, a huge deep dive in that webinar about how to drive ROI. Love it. Um, but I'd say in the upper funnel, uh, what you typically want to do as a rule of thumb is uh, this is where you can really utilize larger macro influencers because they are, you know, most obviously going to get the most eyeballs on them. What people typically don't expect is that as you move into the lower funnel, what you probably want to be doing is working with smaller influencers, micro influencers. And this seems counterintuitive, but the reason for this is smaller influencers have a much more intimate relationship with their audience, their audience is much more likely to be able to send a DM and get a response from that influencer or, you know, leave a comment with a question and get a direct answer from that influencer. So we typically see micro influencers do a lot well for lower funnel campaigns. Um, Now, on top of that, we always pair organic influencer marketing with paid ads. And the reason for this is 
if you don't do this, you are essentially squeezing like half the lemon. You're not getting the full squeeze out of what you could get out of that tactic. We always, and I say always, I would say 99.9% of the time, we see that when you put influencer content into a paid ad, it blows your standard content out of the water. It just massively, you know, um, just overruns it to the point that we've got um, clients now where for many of our campaigns, we're only running influencer marketing in those ads because they've just completely knocked off the standard, you know, ads. So, so what have you learned about growing your own audience online, Jen? Specifically, talk about kind of how you, how you got started, how your audience has grown over time. Maybe give us a little bit of a backstory as well. Yeah. Um, so I think what I probably learned very early on is a little bit scary. I think for a lot of creators who are not used to being in the limelight or, um, even brands who are, you know, looking to kind of grow their audience, um, and their influence. But the most important thing I would say is you, you know, there's this old adage about if you are speaking to everyone, you're speaking to no one. Um, you, as you grow your following and as you get more eyeballs on yourself, you are 1000% never going to please everybody. But beyond that, you should never be aiming to please everybody because that's not how content grows, um, in views. It's not how content goes viral. It's not how people are going to stick around. Um, you know, one of the primary KPIs on many of these platforms um, to determine what's going to go viral is watch time. So getting people to stick around on a video long enough that it says to the algorithm, okay, this piece of content is successful. Let's push it out to more people. And you don't get people to stick around if you're sort of uh, talking about something that's not particularly interesting, uh, you know, or is kind of lower common denominator or just kind of speaks to everybody. You really, you're a generalist. Exactly. You want to be speaking specifically to the person. And that may even include, you know, um, creating a video where you call out a specific city in the beginning because people hear that and they go, oh, that's my city. That's me. I should stick around and listen to this. Mm. So, like I said, I started on YouTube, um, you know, out of college, I started working in tech. And during that time, I was also um, creating YouTube videos. And um, I learned pretty quickly, you know, early on, if I made talking videos where I talked about topics that were kind of polarizing and I had a, van- a, a viewpoint that not everybody agreed with, um, those videos took off. And the more that those videos took off, the more brands start- wanted to work with me. And before I knew it, I was making more off my YouTube channel than I was in my entry level job. And so um, I quit tech and I, I just, you know, continued on with YouTube. Um, I do now, obviously, I've come back in. Um, I work part time for real time as their head of marketing, but I still have continued on, um, you know, growing my socials. I've grown uh, channels across YouTube, across Instagram, across TikTok. Um, so this tactic does work. You really want to make sure that you are speaking to a very niche, small group of people. Um, that niche, small group of people is still going to be millions and millions of people, but that's how you get content to go viral. Super fascinating. Are there certain things that you've learned that the best influencers do time and time again to consistently grow their following, uh, demonstrate impacts, grow their brand? Yeah. So I'd start probably with the, um, with this one that I just mentioned, which is, you know, speaking specifically to a subset of 
consumers or a subset of an audience. I would say other things I see influencers do um, who are really, really successful is um, number one, you have to be communicating with your audience frequently. Um, so this means, you know, not kind of disappearing off the map for a month. You should be posting regularly. You should be responding to DMs. Um, personally, like I go live um, on TikTok every single week. I post to TikTok every week. I post to Instagram every couple of days. Um, it needs to be consistent. Um, and then I'd say another thing that I see a lot of influencers do, um, a lot of the successful influencers do is getting kind of, up, I'm going to call it like up close and personal. Um, so you really want to be kind of peeling back the layers of your personality, letting people see into who you really are. And this is very different than what influencers used to be, let's say like six years ago, where it, you know, you could just sort of take pretty images and put them on Instagram and people would follow you. That's not good enough anymore. Um, people want to know you. They want to see a raw kind of unfiltered side of you. And I think that, you know, hindsight's always 2020. Uh, seeing that change over the past few years clearly now has led us to where we are with this new age of Gen Z influencers, where they're not kind of in these subsets or these verticals. They are influencers as a whole person because people want like to see that whole person, the raw side, the unfiltered side. What else is important here? Something that we see a lot as well is the production values have increased for all content across the board. Yeah. Well, I would say one thing about that is, um, I think a lot of influencers who do well know where to use the high production quality and where to kind of be that like raw, unfiltered self. So for instance, on TikTok, um, we do see, and I bring up TikTok a lot because that's my kind of my primary channel now that I produce content on. I'm most involved in TikTok. I also think a lot of brands are interested in kind of how to be successful on TikTok sure. now, but um, I think from the influencer's point of view, um, kind of knowing when and where to use that high production quality. Um, you know, for instance, on TikTok, a lot of the time, a lower quality video will outperform because it feels much more native to that platform. But you're right across across platforms like YouTube, or YouTube especially, um, and Instagram, we are now seeing that higher production quality is doing better. Um, but I will give a piece of advice. I think for brands in particular, this is um, really relevant. Uh, on Again, TikTok, primarily this is where we're seeing this, but on TikTok, um, brands that are doing well are really, uh, you know, coming at the strategy with a humanized approach. Um, TikTok, I would say, is the one place where audiences do not want to see any, even an inkling of a brand talking positively about themselves. They want to see a brand who's not afraid to, you know, joke at themselves, who um, is, you know, being very silly, who's who's showing the humans behind the company. Um, there are a few different examples on TikTok. I'd say um, Duolingo is probably one of the best examples. Uh, Ryanair is doing a great job. Even Spirit Airlines is, you know, coming into this space and starting to do a really good job. But I'd say for brands, you know, um, I hear a lot of brands say, well, you know, we've got all this content that we used on Instagram. Can't we just chuck it on TikTok? The answer is no. You've got to have a completely separate strategy for TikTok. <laughs> right. Talk a little bit about what you've seen on the B2B side, if you have seen anything. Yeah. So we've actually got a fair share of um, B2B brands that um, take advantage of influencer marketing. And I, I know it is 
a hot question because B2B is notoriously hard um, to kind of, you know, find the right audiences for it. I mean, for influencer marketing, it's, it is very tricky. Um, I would say from, from my experience, and I will maybe note at this point before taking on this role of head of marketing, I was on the ad buying side for around 10 years. So, um, I've got a lot of experience on, um, kind of how ad buying works for this type of stuff. Um, and I would say that for B2B, one of the trickiest things is really nailing down your audience in, um, a cost-effective way because, there are ways to get to your audience, but as many B2B marketers know, it can be very expensive to do so. Sure. Um, so I would say that with influencer marketing, pairing that organic content with paid ads is critical for B2B. I, I would go as far as to say that if you're not doing that, you're probably not going to see a return. And the reason for that is um, when it comes to organic posting, the influencer can't control what aspects of their audience are seeing this content. When you put paid dollars behind it, you can obviously use much more intelligent targeting. You can get right down to the people that you want to target. You can use custom audiences. Um, you can use first and third party data, you can't use any of that when, when it's just the organic post. So really when you're considering, um, the value of influencer marketing for B2B, when you're considering how much you're going to pay an influencer, you really need to be thinking about the fact that, you know, okay, maybe we're not going to get the organic performance that we want, but this is a fresh piece of content that we can now use as performance marketing in our paid, uh, strategy. You talked about paying influencers there a moment ago. How do you think about paying influencers and how much you should pay influencers, depending on the size of their audience, depending on engagement rates, what metrics or parameters are you using to decide how much to pay different kinds of influencers? Yeah, that is the million dollar question, right? <laughs> Everybody wants right? to know. It's the wild west. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is probably like when I talk to clients who haven't run influencer marketing before, that is the number one question. How much do we pay an influencer? Um, and you're right, it is the wild west, but I, I think it's the wild west for for a pretty good reason. Um, anyone who has you know done anything in influencer marketing knows that the rates are kind of all over the place. Um, I would say, and you know, for those listening, take this with a grain of salt. There are a million variables that will go into how much we pay an influencer, um, both having to do with the influencer itself, as well as having to do with kind of your own internal strategy and what you're trying to get out of this campaign. Um, I would say a good starting point is uh, maybe looking at like a $30 CPM. Um, and that may seem a little bit high, like if you're comparing it to, you know, your uh, Facebook CPMs for paid ads, things like that. But again, keep in mind, um, you're going to see much more efficient metrics on paid strategy because it is so much more targeted versus like an organic strategy where what you're really paying for is that fresh content that you can pull into the paid ads. So I'd say start with maybe a $30 CPM. Um, now that number may come down if you, uh, for instance, we have some home decor brands where we've worked with influencers and we've gifted them, um, you know, couches or beds or very high value products, um, where we've only kind of supplemented with pay underneath that because it was such a high value product that we were giving them. So if you've got very expensive products, that number may be able to come down a little bit. Um, if you're primarily looking for sales, I would say, um, there, you know, there's always the option to offer the creator an affiliate link and say, okay, well, we'll give you 15% of every sale that you make that may be able to bring down, um, that pay a little bit. So there is a lot of wiggle room again, a little bit of the wild rest West. I think there's a good reason for that. Um, but yeah, start with a $30 CPM and then kind of adjust from there. I'd say. 
Last question, Jen, before we let you go. So we're at a nice restaurant, a restaurant of your choosing, which is, do you have a favorite restaurant? I'm vegan. So I love like vegan restaurants that make gourmet, very, very good food. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. So we're at your favorite gourmet vegan restaurant and you can invite three people living or dead to dinner to make you better or smarter or increase your performance in some way, shape or form. Which three people do you pick? Mm, And they're going to eat the vegan food, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or they're going to go hungry. (laughs) There will be wine there. They'll be fine. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So I would say probably number one, um, there are a lot of creators that I look up to because they have taken their um, influencer marketing, their, their brand, and they've turned it into multiple massive businesses. And they are just machines. They are just turning out business after business after business. Um, I'd say probably a few of those. I don't know if I can choose just one, but um, Casey Neistat, for instance, uh, he started out as a, as a vlogger. He's got you know multiple businesses now. Amazing. Um, Mr. Beast has done the exact same thing. I'd say Emma Chamberlain is uh, you know she she's up there. She's I, she there's no cap on her. She's just continuing to grow and grow. Yeah. Then on top of that, maybe I would choose like a a TikTok engineer just to get some you know the inside scoop on the algorithm things I'm not able to figure out on my own through my own performance. <laughs> Um, and then maybe last but not least, um, personally, so my content that I make on social media is, um, posing content. So I teach people on TikTok how to be confident in front of the camera, um, how to be, you know, really, uh, vibrant, how to pose, how to grow their Instagram through making really beautiful content. And so, Part of that is kind of looking at um, like my favorite models. How do they pose? How do they move? How do they walk? So I'd probably choose um, one of my favorite models to come join. Uh, maybe like Yasmin uh, Guri, I really love. Maybe someone like her. Jen, I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Nathan. This has been great. This is Influencers, a production of Bridge Growth, the B2B influencer agency for technology brands. I could not produce this show without our crack staff here at Bridge. Tyler Balib is our booker. Sean Ranwala is our production assistant. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to This is Influence. <laughs>